And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. <laughs> it has been a very lovely day, a very lovely weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I uh, have been soaking up all of the vitamin D from the sun's rays. But... You know, taking care to wear, like, proper sunscreen and everything, right? Oh, that's a given. I'm a redhead. That is a given. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking. I'm enjoying the sunshine and, um, yeah, just having a really nice day. How are you feeling? Um, Yesterday, we helped a friend move. I'm feeling sore. I feel great. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's good. I guess it means that... I did more lifting than you. I don't think so. I don't think so. No, we probably did about the same. Anyways, not that I'm like trying to measure biceps or anything. (laughs) Um, What are we doing today? What are we watching? Today, Sarah, we're watching From Hell It Came. From heck, Ben. No, this this We don't want an explicit. We already, listen, that ship sailed. Listen, Ben, I don't give a fuck. It's from heck it came. (laughs) (laughs) ship sailed long ago uh from hell it came from 1957 directed by dan milner okay so you remember phantom from Ten Thousand leagues vaguely that's roger corman right it was on a double feature with a roger corman movie but it wasn't actually corman it was produced by dan and jack milner who were two brothers and film editors um dan did film editing jack did sound editing um who were given a chance to make their own movie when aip needed a quick second feature for roger corman's day the world ended um this was when aip figured out that like if they made both movies on the double bill they would make more money Mm -hmm. um and so they just quickly gave the milners some money to make something so that double feature did make a lot of money but hollywood didn't really come knocking down the milner's doors um because in the two years since they haven't done anything oh i don't just mean they haven't like made more movies i mean like they haven't gone back to their editing jobs either they've just got like a two-year gap on their cv here (laughs) um so from hell it came would be their second feature film as directors and producers um it would also be their last oh So Dan Milner, who directed this film, uh, would continue to work as an editor until 1962, and then he passed away in 1983 at age 81. Jack Milner, who produced this film, would continue as a sound editor until 1976 and pass away in 1989 at age 76. So they just kind of decided this isn't what we actually want to be doing. We want to go back to editing? Um, maybe like the industry decided for them. Maybe like the relative success and or failures of their movies decided for them oh no um no this final feature from them would not even be released through aip like they didn't want to give these guys more money after phantom from Ten Thousand leagues this is actually coming out through allied artists okay now allied artists if you've been listening to the show regularly you would know that they've been having sort of a 
brief flirtation with respectability under the leadership of Walter Mersch, producing these like B plus movies with slightly higher budgets and like occasionally a name star in there somewhere. Um, but by 1957, the company had decided to f- switch back to focusing on low budget trash uh, in order to compete with AIP, who was just creaming them at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mersch actually left Allied Artists, took his talents elsewhere, founded the Mersch Company, and signed a deal with United Artists to distribute his films. And that's a deal that would lead to later Mersch produced movies like Some Like It Hot, The Pink Panther, and In the Heat of the Night. Okay. So yeah, with with Mersch gone, Allied Artists is sort of back to... Where they started. Where they started, exactly. Um, Which includes releasing this movie. So this film stars Todd Andrews, who was born Theodore Anderson in 1914 and originally went by the name Michael Ames when he started his acting career in the 1940s. Um, In 1949 or so, he switched from appearing in movies to appearing on television, and at the same time, he switched his name to Todd Andrews. Sure, try to keep like a TV persona separate from his film persona, because it does seem like it's a little difficult for actors to go back and forth. Yeah, I also wonder if it wasn't that like, he wasn't getting anywhere as Michael Ames. So it's like new start Um, because when he came back to doing films in the late 1950s, he kept the name Todd Andrews. Sure. Well, it's different when you're in TV going to, yes, you know, the silver screen. (laughs) Um, So he would continue in minor roles on TV and in film for many years until his death in 1972 of a heart attack. Oh dear. Uh, The film credits itself as introducing Linda Watkins, uh, but the 49-year-old actress had actually been acting on stage since 1925 and made her first film appearance in 1931. Um, However, she married lawyer Gabriel Hess in 1932, and he was an attorney for the Motion Picture Association and William Hayes. And after they had a son, she, like, retired from acting to, like, raise their son for the next 20 years and then i guess once he was like out of the house and on his own she came back to acting um so So that's like reintroducing yes so that's the reason behind the credit and she would work regularly on tv and in film until she passed away in 1976 the film's monster is a creature designed by paul blaisdell i'm gonna be interested to watch the movie and find out what its name is because depending on the source it's referred to as either tobonga Tabanga, <laughs> Taranga, and Baranga. All right. So I, I don't know what this monster's name is. Uh, do we need to be worried about the design possibly being... It's a tree person. Okay. Okay. It's 1957, Sarah. It's not going to be a giant dick. I was worried it was just going to be another like ape kind of thing. Oh. No, it's like a Groot-like tree monster, because this is Paul Blaisdell, after yeah, yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird okay. shit on no money. <laughs> well, we haven't seen a tree monster yet. Mm-hmm. Well, Look, no, not really. Yeah. There were those man-eating plants mm. in that one movie. But, no, like um, this is like a tree monster with yeah, yeah, like, yeah. hands and legs and a face. Uh, you, you never played World of Warcraft, right? No. Um, but you know, with like the Druids in world of warcraft at least on like the night elf side they can turn into trees oh i didn't know that oh 
Okay, but that is what I'm imagining. Okay. Um, so listeners, look up Night Elf Healing Druid World of Warcraft. I'm going to show Ben a picture. Uh, okay, <laughs> specify tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, like... So that's what I'm imagining. Okay, yeah, like that or like the original Jack Kirby Groot. Yeah. But just with like no money. Like, you yeah. know, Paul Blaisdell style. Um, the monster is played by stuntman Chester Hayes, uh, who also plays the role of Prince Maku. Oh, right. So, yes, this movie is set on a South Seas island uh, <laughs> with a lot of white actors pretending to be Polynesian. What a surprise. Mm -hmm. I am shocked, shocked to find brown face in my 1950s Hollywood movie. Right, exactly. So From Hell It Came was released on August 25th, 1957 on a double bill with a film called The Disembodied, uh, which okay. we will be watching next week, which is set in Haiti and features Alison Hayes. Oh, interesting. Also doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. So you said that From Hell It Came. August 25th, 1957. Yeah, so it's we're just past the 64th anniversary. We're recording this on August 29th, mm -hmm. 2021. So it was critically panned. Oh, no. <laughs> um, both then and now. So no, now. like, 60th anniversary no. releases. Okay. Um, the most famous review of From Hell It Came is, quote, And to hell it can go. <laughs> um, it is often regarded to be one of the worst movies ever made. Um, valuable only for the so bad it's good factor. Uh, Leonard Maltin once said that as talking tree movies go, it's pretty good, but that was before the Guardians of the Galaxy movies came out. So, um, <laughs> However, despite this very low critical opinion over the decades, um, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray from the Warner Archive Collection. Yeah, but like the Warner Archive collection is like a print-on-demand thing. That's right. So it's like they can just put anything on there. Sure, sure. They but don't need to worry about like, w will this sell? But like, it, I just, you know, you still have to like have it be an acceptable like for Blu-ray. Like you have to scan the 35 millimeter elements and like, you know, make the, the Blu-ray. Um, it just strikes me because like last week we watched Back from the Dead which was actually like a cool find and has never been released on home video mm -hmm. ever, even though it's like um, nominally a 20th century Fox movie. So it's not like it's totally, yeah. you know, forgotten or something. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it's I just mean, always like, interesting to me, like which of these movies get Blu-ray releases and which we have to watch on like shitty YouTube channels. Totally. Um, yeah. Like I was a teenage werewolf is really hard to find mm -hmm, yeah. so yeah that's fair by the way the situation with i was a teenage werewolf has to do with like the widow of one of the founders of aip claims to have the rights to like 7 to 14 of their catalog like just her and is being like a real stickler about it it's why like one of the earlier movies we watched we couldn't find a okay. blu-ray of that we should have like two different viewers have like contacted me to be like, this is the deal. This is why the copyright is a problem. Oh, um, well, thank you to those listeners for doing the digging for us. Yes, we do appreciate that. Yeah. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy of, of from hell it came to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss from heck it came. <laughs> 
from 1957, directed by Dan Milner. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching From Hell It Came from 1957, directed by Dan Milner. Benjamin, first thoughts. Well, I'm upset that like, and to hell it can go was used. Yeah. Like, how are we supposed to? 70 years ago. Okay, pack it in, boys. Like, there's nothing else we can say. Yeah, we're done. (laughs) Like, yeah, covered it. Um, This was fucking awful. Yeah, this, uh, I think that there could be some value in watching this if you want to learn how to not write a screenplay. <laughs> you know, there's always a learning experience that can be done. It's, it's bad. It really is. Let's, though. let's get through the story synopsis as quick as possible so we can talk about how bad it is. Okay. We are set on a Polynesian island. We are here because, uh, the U.S. was doing nuclear tests nearby, and a typhoon pushed some of the nuclear fallout uh, onto this island. The U.S. government has sent some doctors here to determine how do we help the people who live here? Uh, what have we done? Uh, luckily, there's little to no fallout that can be found here, but the native people are suffering from the Black Plague. Uh, so the doctors are, are trying to cure that. Now, the native population doesn't really trust these white Americans coming in uh, because they are the ones who gave some nuclear fallout in the first place. And that relationship gets worse once uh, the chief dies and the chief's son, Kimo, gets executed. Now, it's kind of like we come into the movie, first scene, Kimo is getting executed and a lot of exposition given that... The new chief, whose name is Maranka, and the medicine doctor named Tano are like, we're killing you, Kimo, because uh, you have conspired with the Americans to kill your dad. And so now we're going to kill you. And Kimo's like, no, like, I didn't do anything. Uh, You guys poisoned my dad to take power. My wife, Corey, tell them. And Corey's like, no, it was definitely the Americans who did this. Now, Corey is doing this so she can get with Maranka. They've been sleeping on the sly. So Kimo gets killed in a voodoo ceremony. Big quotation marks on that voodoo. Um, He gets a ceremonial knife through the heart and then gets buried in this coffin. Before he dies, though, he does invoke some vengeful spirits to take his revenge on Maranka, Tano, and Corey. Now we cut to the doctors to get their exposition um, of like why they're here, etc. But let me kind of run down who we have here. We have Professor Clark, who's like our main patriarch uh, leading this like expedition, for lack of a better word. Dr. William Bill Arnold. Eddie, who is like our U.S. representative and works the radio. And Mrs. Kilgore, who uh, is, is, has a Cockney accent or something. Uh, and runs the nearby general store or the something. The trading post. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, because 
they're not too sure about how relationship with the native population is going to go. Uh, now that the chief and chemo are dead, the team radios the U.S. government to send another doctor just to kind of like help keep things under control. And they send Dr. Terry Mason, who is a lady. Uh, turns out, happens to be uh, kind of like an old flame-ish of uh, Dr. Bill Arnold. And basically, he and her are like in love, but she doesn't want to get married and settle down and get stuck with kids working out of the house. And Dr. Bill's like, but that's all I want. I just want to marry you and stick you in the house and I continue to be a doctor. And they are at that impasse. And here Ben and I are like, you can get married and not be stuck at home with the kids and you can still you, both be doctors. There's no law saying you have to quit your job. Yeah. Except the law of 1950s patriarchy as depicted in terrible movies. Mm-hmm. So we, we also get... Uh, some more characters. Terry gets her own servant girl uh, named Orchid, who is uh, half white, half Polynesian. And Terry tells her, oh, wow, like you speak such great English. Great. And then we also get Norgu and his wife, Dory, uh, basically as like representatives of the native population coming over and saying like, hey, we're not allowed to come over here anymore because the doctor, our, our medicine doctor said that it's, we're not allowed to come over, but now we're going to give you some more exposition. And that exposition is that there's a legend of the Tabanga, uh, which is like a living tree monster um, that is a vengeful spirit and comes and kills people. Uh, and this tree is growing out of Kimo's grave. So the doctors are like, okay, well, let's go study it. And uh, first they see it and they're like, yeah, it's just like a shrub. And then they go back and then there's a face on it. And they're like, oh, well, that's kind of strange. Uh, but it, it using like a stethoscope, we can tell that it has like a, almost a human-like heartbeat and um, has radioactive Geiger readings. Uh, we come back. Oh, my God. It's like a full tree. Um, person person full like fully grown over the course of this day let's um free it from its roots and take it back to the lab to study it now the only thing that is uh particularly interesting okay there's two things but i'll get to that later um what is kind of interesting here is uh it's terry who gets to be a little bit of a mad scientist which is fun because we haven't really seen a lady mad scientist. But she's like, no, it's alive. It's dying. I'm going to try to save it using chemical X. I think they actually call it formula X. But in, in any case, she uses this much to the chagrin of the other doctors. And the creature, the Tabonga, gets revived and then starts to hunt down Cory and Maranka. With Cory uh, capturing her and tossing her into the quicksand at the edge of the forest. And then with Maranka by uh, squeezing him to death. I, I guess. It's unclear um, why these different methods of murder. In any case, uh, now the native population is like, oh, fuck. The Topanga's here and it's, it's killing us. Zatanna's like, great. I'll play bait and we'll lure the Tabanga into this pit and they successfully do so and then they set it on fire and then they walk away thinking that it's dealt with it is not dealt with the tabanga rises 
And uh, this is when the natives are like, oh, shit, our fire didn't work. Let's go to the Americans and see if they can do anything. And the Americans quickly grab their guns. As they are doing that, the Dabanga manages to get to and kill Tano by pushing him down a hill and he hits his head on a rock. And also gets like a, a branch, stabs his back. In any case, Tano is dead. So now the Americans, with their guns, and including all those previous characters that I listed, uh, are now walking through the jungle trying to find the Tabanga to kill it. As they are doing that, Terry gets kidnapped because she stops to take a rock out of her sandal. If you're in the jungle, wear hiking boots, girl. Anyways, so, so she gets kidnapped and the Tabanga is basically carrying her to go dump her into the quicksand at the edge of the forest like he did with Cory. For some reason. For some reason, rather than just like killing her in any other method. Or why is he killing her at all? Actually, his entire mission is over and she has nothing to do with him. Yeah. But she's the blonde white girl, so. Yeah. Uh, so the <laughs> Tabanga is walking away from the rest of the group and persists on the slowly walking. So the expedition decides, okay, well, let's get his attention. Let's shoot at him. The bullets are bouncing off of him. Okay, so then let's shoot the knife that is still in this tree trunk. And that will push the knife further into the Tabanga's heart and, and kill him. So they shoot at him to get him to turn around. He turns around and then they're shooting at him to shoot the knife in. And someone manages to do that, and then Paul Blaisdell falls backwards into the quicksand. Terry and Bill reunite and make out, uh, presumably to then go get married and have Terry's fears of being locked in a house to listen to rock and roll for the rest of her life to be realized. And um, Mrs. Kilgore, uh, who is also widowed, by the way, uh, she tries to get with the professor. The end. So, um, okay, so I, I briefly mentioned this, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of come back to this. I said there were two interesting things here. Right. One was lady mad scientist. Sure. She's not really mad, but no. she's at least the one who's like fiddling with chemical X. She's the one who's the most excited to do science. Yeah. Um, doc- and that was nice. Yeah. Dr. Bill seems like he's too bored to be part of this movie and do anything. Absolutely. And um, the other scientist, the older guy, just sort of delivers all of his lines in the same kind of monotone. So, Yeah, did you notice he never really fully opens his mouth? Yeah. But yet he's like saying full sentences. Like, how is he able to do that? Oh, yeah. He's just sort of saying everything like this. Just talking without really putting any effort into opening his mouth. Exactly. But he's like enunciating. Yeah. It's, so it's like, it, it, is he just used to years of talking with a cigarette in your mouth? Yeah. Sarah? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. But definitely like no one is putting a lot of energy into this show. No. And then the second thing is, um, the creature design is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul Blaisdell is really good at the look of his creature designs. Uh, whether those designs are effective to move in, operate, do anything besides stand there, he yeah. needs to work on that. But yeah. it, it does look great. Yeah, it, it's a neat looking design. Paul Blaisdell should have like drawn comic books or something. Yeah. So this movie's bad 
on so many levels. Yeah. And I want to like start out by saying it's not in the so bad it's good category. No. Like you're going to get a few good laughs at the monster, but that's about it. The movie's 70 minutes long. Dr. Terry Mason, our lead female character, arrives at the 20 minute mark. So mm-hmm. keep in mind the plot summary Sarah just gave you. 20 minutes in is when she shows up. Removing the creature from the, like the creature going on its rampage, escaping from the lab. That's at the 45 minute mark in this 70 minute movie. So literally halfway. Yeah. Um, I think the creature kills its first victim at like the 50 minute mark with like 20 minutes left to go in the movie. And yet somehow this feels so long. Yeah. Because... There's no story, there's no atmosphere, there's no tension, and in lieu of those things, they just have people talking at each other, delivering exposition, scene after scene after scene. Yeah, there's too many characters. Yeah. Not enough of them have anything to do with anything. Like, Orchid is purposeless. She, nothing happens with her. She goes nowhere. Um, There doesn't need to be two evil people in the tribe. Um, there doesn't need to be two evil women in the tribe, except that we get a cat fight out of them at one point. Um, the character of Mrs. Kilgore serves no purpose whatsoever other than to be some comic relief in like the two scenes that she's basically in. Um, there's just a lot of characters who like don't need to be here and don't need to exist. If you ever wanted to know how not to write exposition, look at this movie because this is a movie that is just full of people explaining who they are and why they're here back and forth to each other as if you know when i see sarah every day i go like ah sarah i see that you are working at your job as like a a marketing uh coordinator for like a large tech firm yeah it's been really great working for them and supporting our marriage that we've had for six years yes as you know we've been renting this house for a year now You don't need to know all that. People don't talk to each other like that. And that's how everyone in this movie talks to each other is just like saying things that we already know over and over. But also in a very confusing way to the point where like, as we're getting a lot of stuff in like the first few scenes, I made you pause so I could like go through so I could understand like the convoluted way that we've justified these doctors being here. Well, because like, like, because once you start phrasing things in that, as you already know, kind of way... Yeah. But also, like, this movie doesn't care what's going on in it. Yeah. Like, the Tabanga is a legendary folkloric monster that grew out of Kimo's wooden coffin, maybe? Or maybe is Kimo? Because it has the same knife in its heart that Kimo did when he was killed. But then, like, maybe is Vengeful Spirits, maybe is, like after the Americans, but maybe he's after the tribe, like is either the embodiment of vengeance or is actually chemo come back, except that it is radioactive. So maybe it's a science monster due to the fallout, except the fallout hasn't affected anything else. Also, we never cure the plague. And like, (laughs) there's just a bunch of shit going on here that never goes anywhere or has anything to do with anything because there's about 20 minutes of story here in this 70 minute movie. You know, I pointed this out about the monster going after Terry. Uh, the monster only does that because she's the like the lead female character. Yeah. Otherwise, like its mission is over. Like it should have, if it's a big folkloric vengeance monster, like once it killed 
Tano, it should have just like, I don't know, walked into quicksand itself. Yeah, exactly. It should have flowered and uh, had like seeds go everywhere. Why? Like fire didn't affect it at all, but like shooting the knife into it deeper did. And also how the fuck does like the physics of that make sense? (laughs) The creature costume can bend its arms at the elbows and then can't bend them any more than that because it has no shoulders and it has no waist. So it can't really Really bend bend down to pick things up. Yeah. So like it picks up a gal and throws her into the quicksand. That's death number one. Yeah. Death number two of Maranka is he approaches Maranka arms out. Maranka backs up into a tree trunk and then the creature just kind of rams him against the tree trunk and then he's just dead. Yeah. From that. And of course, like a lot of Paul Placedell designs, this thing walks everywhere super slowly because not only is it hard to walk in the suit, I'm sure, but you get the sense that the person inside can't see anything. Yeah. Um, It does have kind of a neat mouth. Like I said, the design is really neat. Like the mouth has like an internal part where you can see teeth mm -hmm. and then an external part where there's lips. Like I said, like the design is neat. Yeah. It's just a bad monster. Um, It's really hard to, you know, have any thrill in your movie when the monster moves so slowly and none of the actors are like emoting to anything. Like these people are seeing like a moving, living tree man and they just like, it's just blank faces like they just yeah. completely no sell this entire movie another day at the office like terry is more excited about getting to use her formula on a test subject yeah it, it was more about like cool i can test this on something other than like chimpanzees yeah than the fact that there's a fucking tree man yeah. also they get so far as to find the tree man cut him down bring him to the lab know that he has a pulse knows that he has blood inject him with things etc have him get up walk away and at that point bill's still like well what if the myth of the tabanga is real though like you just saw him on the table my guy um the movie's racist very much so like to the point where like i don't know take a shot every time there's a cringe yeah like the movie's not just racist in that like it's a bunch of white people playing polynesians like it's it's racist um at one point like in her introductory scene mrs kilgore is like oh i wish we had like just nuked these guys yeah like these natives here yeah how dare they like scare me yeah only imagine that in like a very heavy poorly done cockney accent yeah um the movie's sexist yes the movie's also very imperialist like it's like we're the americans here to help these people and they won't accept our like superior american medicine we are nuking things near here so that this movie can try to have some like atomic age relevancy, but Oh, but none of the fallout is dangerous. Um, yeah. it, it came here, but it's all fine. And like literally after they shoot the knife into the creature, like the last remaining native character who's played by an actor who gets dialogue says like, Oh, well now we know we will trust the power of your American science. Yeah. They also, uh, will, refer to the natives and, and kind of talk about them as if they are children. Yeah. Um, like at, at one point they think that some people from the village came into the lab and just like, uh, in their words, like 
toss things around like a child having a tantrum. The script is very confused. Yeah. Um, characters sort of change motivation or attitude from scene to scene. It's very kitchen sink where it's like we're just throwing in like every kind of plot line and motivation that we can kind of throw in here. Um, The lore is inconsistent on like what things are and how anything works. One thing with um, the racism and the Mm. sexism and Mm. all of that of uh, who are presumed to be our main characters, the people who we should have some kind of like sympathy for or should like, they're not likable. No. Like at no point, and, and I feel like this isn't even just like, oh, because we have 2021 vision on. Right. Like I feel like no one here would actually be likable to a contemporary audience. Well, they don't have enough personality anyway. Like what yeah. personality they have is bad, but like I couldn't, like the only thing I can tell you about Bill is he complains about fucking everything. He seems way too bored to be alive. And he wants Terry to marry him and doesn't want to listen to anything she has to say. Terry's personality is that she wants to be a scientist and not a wife. Yeah. The other doctor's personality is that he's here. Yeah, it really is. Like Eddie, I think is the only, like, I guess you could say likable character because he doesn't have enough going on <laughs> to make him he's not likable blank slate yeah, you can he's... just project onto eddie whatever you want exactly why is orchid here why do we have all these other characters um the acting is basically uniform terrible yeah it ranges from either actors who clearly feel this is beneath them which is the vibe i get from todd andrews then you've got the actors who are sort of stuck with doing native dialogue where they're like, no one, the, the writer didn't even like really give the natives like that broken bad English. broken English. Like he just wrote them in English, but they've been directed to talk like it's broken English. So it's like, I am the native chieftain of this island. Like that's how all the natives talk. Um, so, th- so they're kind of like handicapped in terms of their acting, you know, or it gets all the way down to like actors who are bad, just can't. Like the actress playing Corey. Right. Everything she says is in the same kind of way. She looked at the script, saw that her role was um, evil woman and delivers every single line like, I am the evil woman. In exactly that cadence and tone every time. There's a a character named Maku. Uh, He's played by Chester Hayes, who's the stuntman who plays the monster. Okay. And Maku's the guy at the very end of the movie who's like, we'll trust your American science now. And his, well, it's nice that he got some dialogue. Well, except that he's <laughs> terrible. And like the reason he's terrible is because he's a stuntman. And the only reason his character's talking at that point is because all the other natives by that point have been killed. No, they've just run off. It's just... <sighs> the only people who die here are Corey, Maranka, and Tano. Right. The only person here who's actually putting effort into her acting is still bad um, because that's Linda Watkins who is overselling the character of Mrs. Kilgore. Who's supposed to be like comic relief and whose whole shtick is like, she's a middle-aged like chatty, annoying woman who like runs through husbands. Like most people run through tissue paper kind of thing. But here's the thing. She's a widow twice over. Oh Yeah. Is she a serial killer? 
hey, you got to make up stuff <laughs> in your brain in order to entertain yourself while watching this movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like she's putting the effort in. It's just bad. It, it's so bad. But it's, it's very much like a like, oi, I'm getting back into acting after 20 years away. I, I read the script last night, Mr. Director, and I thought maybe I'd give it an old Cockney accent. What do you think? And the director's like, yeah, sure, that seems fine. Yeah, besides oi, the only other, like, Cockney slang she knows is bloomin'. Yeah. And oh, there's bloomin' monsters coming to the bloomin' house to bloomin' take us away. Ain't bloomin'. that right, Ducky? Yeah. I can't actually do the accent, so I just said that normally. Um, so then you've got, uh, I believe her name's Tina Carver. She's playing Terry Mason. Now, the one thing I'll say about this movie that's unique, but I won't, the movie shouldn't get points for it or anything. Everyone in this movie is like over 30, um, which is kind of nice in that, like, it's nice to have like the scientist woman not be like 22 or something like she's 35, um, the actress playing her. But I have three things to say about this. One, the fact that everyone in this movie is kind of older, I don't think is some purposeful like realism or something. I think it's that everyone in this movie is on the downslope of their careers Mm-hmm. Two, the directors of this movie, the Milner brothers, were both are, are like both in their fifties, so they are not like doing what they should be doing, which is playing to the teen audience. Yeah, like everyone in this movie should be younger in order to play to that audience, but instead we've got a bunch of older people. In fact, they're kind of like at one point the characters complain about how rock and roll sucks or whatever. Yeah. Number three, it kind of undercuts some of the characters that they're being played by these clearly older actors. Like the, as much as it's cool to see older actresses get to be the sexy ladies in movies, it's just, it's just kind of sad to see these like women in their forties who are playing the native like femme fatale roles having to do this kind of stuff. If you get what I mean. Um, Having to deal with this really bad script getting, yeah. You've, you've clearly been trying to break in as an actress since you were like in your twenties and you still haven't been able to do it. Right. Yeah. So that, that's why it's sad, I guess. Um, Um, This is not a horror movie. I did have a spot picked out because I wasn't sure because I do think that this movie is like treading that line between (laughs) obviously incompetently. But treading that line between horror and, like, the horror being like, oh, God, the natives. I don't think there's any horror in here. Because yeah. in order for there to be horror here, the characters would have to give a shit about anything that's happening. And I think the fact that there's, like, no atmosphere and no tension really hampers that effort. Even if, the, like, setting out day one filming, the Milners were like, this is going to be a horror movie. Except they... they fucked well, it up it's not even an adventure movie because yeah. the characters aren't going on an adventure it is a monster movie yeah. like this is definitely for sure a monster movie but that's it it's a jungle monster movie that's the genre here and you know a key part key to a horror movie is like like if you are the lead actress in a horror movie <laughs> like the things that you kind of need to be like your baseline bare mins right are like good looking and a good screamer and the actress playing terry can't scream she sounds like a bird squawking it's like ah, ah, ah. 
Yeah, it's like to the point where because like this movie is obviously chock full of bad sound effects for mm-hmm. ambience. I thought it was a bird cawing. Yeah, because like they've had to put in all these jungle sound effects because we're just in Southern California in the woods. Yeah, uh, pretending that it's a Polynesian island. Yeah, so it it's not good. Like, why didn't they ADR her? Yeah, why didn't they? Especially because like so much of the dialogue is obviously ADR'd. But yeah, she can't scream at all no the movie does look great on blu-ray because we just watched back from the dead and it was a very rough version so when this started up i was like oh shit this this stuff can look good yeah but then it just looks clean it doesn't actually look good you know exactly um warner archive also put out the disembodied which is the movie this was on a double bill with Mm -hmm. that movie is set in like a nondescript African village. Ah. It's a very similar, I can see why they paired these two in the disembodied. Alison Hayes is the evil African question mark wife of like this white doctor in this like African village, except that there's like, they, they clearly have no idea like what the racial makeup of the people should be. There's like Calypso going on in the music. There's like voodoo going on in the magic. Some people are dark skinned. Some people are light skinned. Um, They're foreign. Right. They're not like us white Americans. Right. Um, But that movie also like isn't horror. That's a jungle adventure movie, Mm. except that it's mostly just about like a love rhombus between some characters who like are talking to each other in a hut for 70 minutes with the catch being that some of them get like voodoo brain swapped. You know, the easiest way to solve a love rhombus Mm. polyamory. Okay. (laughs) Um, let me tell you the spot that I was looking at. Okay. Um, cause I, I do agree that from hell it came is not horror. I just wanted to say that the disembodied is also not horror but it also has a good looking Warner archive Blu-ray. So I was looking at a single spot and that was above Mesa of lost women and below the unearthly. That seems about right. Yeah. Because like more competent than Mesa of lost women, but at least the unearthly has John Carradine. So yeah. Um, But yeah, like, so if we were to rank it, that's, what my suggestion would be, but that would put it at 186 yeah. out of like 201. Yeah, we just aren't ranking this one. Don't don't waste your time with this. Just uh go watch Back from the Dead again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um if you do want to see where some horror movies like Back from the Dead or other movies that made it to the miscellaneous part of the list are, you can go to our website screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can listen to the show on whatever podcasting app you prefer by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or review. Um, that makes us feel good about ourselves and also makes the algorithm promote the show to people. Um, You can sidestep the algorithm and promote the show yourself by telling people about it either in person or through social media. 
And if you want to help support the show financially, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon, we now do an extra bonus episode every month on horror-adjacent movies like Young Frankenstein. Just went up this last Saturday. So to check out all that bonus content and help support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week if we are not watching The Disembodied? Uh, yeah, so we aren't. Uh, <laughs> we are going to be going back to Britain. Oh. And the welcoming arms of Hammer. Oh. For what will, I hope, be an actual horror movie. And finally redeem this particular subgenre of horror movie. It's The Abominable Snowman starring Peter Cushing. Cool. Yes. Is uh, Christopher Lee in this one? No, it's just Peter Cushing this time. Okay. He's the scientist, I'm pretty sure. Well, he's uh, nailing down that archetype at Hammer, so... Yes. All right. Nailing well... it down with a hammer? <laughs> See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.